Season one of Watch With You is made possible by the support of Barry from Podcast in Color. Thank you, Barry. In Sylvie's Love, the jazz is smooth and the air sultry in the hot New York summer of 1957. Robert Namandi Asmuga, a saxophonist, spends late nights playing behind a less talented but well-known band leader as member of a jazz quartet. Sylvie, Tessa Thompson, who dreams of a career in television, spends her summer days helping around her father's record store as she waits for her fiancé to return from war. When Robert takes a part-time job at the store, the two begin a friendship that sparks a deep passion of them unlike anything they have felt before. As the summer winds down, life takes them in different directions, bringing their relationship to an end. Years pass, Sylvie's career as a TV producer blossoms, while Robert has come to terms of what the age of Motown is doing to the popularity of jazz. In a chance meeting, Sylvie and Robert cross paths again, only to find that while their lives have changed, their feelings for each other remain the same. Writer-director Eugene Ash combines romance and music into a sweeping story that brings together changing times, a changing culture, and the true place of love. Someday we'll be close together, wait and see. Oh, by the way, this time the dreams on me. You'll take my hand. Welcome back, everybody. We're here to talk about another episode of season one, which is Black Women and Romance. And today we are going to talk about Sylvie's love. When a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop in 1950s Harlem, their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends changing times, geography, and professional success. This was a movie released on Amazon. Overall thoughts, I think it was a uh, well put together movie from the storyline to the acting to uh, the cinematography and the costuming. Oh, my only main complaint is that it was rather dark. And I don't know if that's just because my vision can't really deal with super darkness well. But other than that, I think it was a good movie. I watched it today as a refresher, but I had watched it a few months back and enjoyed it when I watched it the first time. So what drew you to watching it the first time? I don't know if there was any one specific thing that drew me to watching it the first time. I think mostly that it was a romance. And I like romance. It doesn't matter. Films as well as books, as we know, doesn't matter whether who's the leads in those books. I mean, leads in the books or the movie. You know, I was like, oh, it's a new movie coming out. And it has music, which I love music. So that was the backdrop of it. So that's why I was watched it the first time. It was a good movie. It came out December 23rd, 2020, two days before Bridgerton um, took over the rest of the year and became this cultural phenomenon. And... Interestingly enough, Rajay John Page, 
started. Well, well, I guess start is the right word, but he appeared in both. He more or less starred in Bridgerton and, and he appeared in Sylvie's Love. And one of the things that I recall being intrigued about was when he was doing press about Bridgerton mainly, he would always bring up Sylvie's Love. And I wasn't sure what type of a role he had in it. So to see it was more or less a supporting role, but he was excited or how I interpreted as excited about what this movie was. You had two period pieces, one that celebrated Black culture and really the transition of time uh, that was going on. So in terms of Black music, which with jazz being one of the great American art forms, having, it's been rumored to be invented in Congo Square in New Orleans and transitioning from the 1800s to New York with the big band era in the Harlem Renaissance and how it transitioned and the creation of bebop to swing and everything to the 60s. But then having the sound of, the, of America, I think that's what they call it, the youth of America with Motown, where the children had other things to say. And I say children because Smokey Robinson and Miracles, the Supremes, they were teenagers. I mean, they were dressed to the nines and they appeared older, but they were all very young when they started out and in their young 20s. So the big band era, the swing, all of that seemed to be their parents' music. And this whole pop, because jazz was popular music, what they started doing, what they created was a different sound, a different era. So where do you leave, you know, just the music shifts and where are you in that transition? I appreciated this movie occupying that space. This is my first time watching it. Madame Lizette, hey H. When we recorded an episode of Bridgerton earlier this season, we talked about, or she said, you have to watch Sylvie's Love. You really, really enjoy it. And I was like, okay, I think part of the reason why I had some hesitancy is because even though the audience on Rotten Tomatoes, I know, I know, grain of salt, did rate it 76%, and their tomato meter is a 93%. So critics, the critics consensus is pretty high. The people's, some of the the critique that I heard, it wasn't necessarily favorable. I didn't know what to expect. I think the melodrama of it all. And and also they said there were some issues with the acting, whereas um, Nanyandi may not be able to carry a role. And I do have thoughts on that. And I thought, well, is this something that I want to spend my time on? with everything else that was coming out and on. And so it was on my list to watch and I just didn't do it. It was meant for me to find it when I did. It didn't necessarily dawn on me that this movie fits our thesis of the season of Black women in period pieces and romance. 
but it absolutely does. So I want to celebrate this movie. I do have some critique, but I do want to celebrate this movie. And I really do hope that we see Black love celebrated throughout the ages. So those are my initial thoughts. And I rate it highly. I do. So we're both giving it a two thumbs up to watch. Absolutely. All right. So I don't exactly like Sylvie or Robert. <laughs> as people? As they're nice people, but they really did suck at putting out their feelings for each other at different or what was going on in their lives and making decisions for one another without allowing the other to be involved. And I don't like that. So there was an because, issue of communication. Yeah. Um, well, we start with Sylvie. Sylvie gets pregnant. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't give Robert the chance to know that he's going to become a father. Mm -hmm. Because she's decided that she doesn't want him to give up his dreams to take care of her and the baby. And then we also have Robert down the line who tells Sylvie not to come with him to Detroit after he's been, you know, hoodwinking, bad and boozled to not having a job instead of just telling her that he doesn't have a job because he didn't want her to give up her dreams to come with him. Like, hello, you two need to talk to each other because that is the decision for the other person to make, not for you to make for them deciding what's best for the other person parents making decisions for their kids who it's their lives they need to make the decision about what they want to do with their life not parents making decision well the same token it's robert's life it's sylvie's life they need to make be involved in the decision making process that's what i don't like about them they don't communicate well i don't know about everyone but i do feel like there are sometimes as her cousin Mona Lisa said, Sylvie and Robert have a love that most people never get. And they've had it for not just a summer, but basically a lifetime. And basically they need to get with the program. They were blessed to have had that because most people don't get it at all. Mm -hmm. They settle, you know, everyone settles for some type of love, but it's not this all encompassing empowering fills you love they settled too they did mostly she settled which then caused him to settle because he couldn't have her but that was also his own fault because he talked about how many times he thought about coming back but he didn't because he wanted her to be happy again no communication one of the things that i'm thinking about is the time frame when we see Sylvie, because this takes place in New York. Most of it takes place in New York. Uh, Robert travels to New York from Detroit to be a musician. And then later travels from New York to Paris and then comes back later. So a lot of his time in New York has to do with his career. While they were recording their album, while they had booking he did look for other work and steady work, which is, and was it Chicago Sweetney, played by Rajay John Page, said 
he approached the record store, which had a hiring sign in the window because he was attracted to Sylvie, who was working there, mainly watching TV. But what we see is that, or in their first meeting, their meet-cute, was that there were expectations placed on Sylvie. And the expectation was that her mother had this finishing school for girls in Harlem. So Sylvie was expected to represent in a way that would benefit her mother's business. And her mother also reminded her of her station in life. So she had settling built in. And then in conversation with her cousin, who was really interesting as her confidant and liberated in a lot of ways, she said, the only reason why you got with Lacey was because he was your escort. And I actually, I'm not even sure if he was escort, but he was a beau at her cotillion or their cotillion. And they got caught fooling around. So the way that the mother addressed that was, well, y'all are getting married. Lacey went off to war. Lacey and uh, Sylvie were engaged, more or less for her mother's comfort, because she cared what she what was thought and said about her and her daughter. But when but Lacey came back, she was pregnant, and he married her anyway. Why? Because he settled. He said, "I loved you, but I knew that you didn't love me the same." So they both settled. And the kindest thing she did for Lacey was set him free and be by herself. Um, having said all that, yeah, Sylvie was fine as a person. I didn't particularly like her or dislike her. I felt in, in a lot of ways that she was trapped. One of the things that I did like about her is that she, she, like me, really enjoyed television. And one of the things that they said when she was just herself and not living in the entrapments or expectations of her mother, that was what was interesting about her, her knowledge and love of music. That was how she and Robert Bond, she recommend albums and cuts to Robert to play and and had an ear where she would know good musicians. So he respected what she thought. He also knew that she knew a lot about television, but unfortunately, her sex and her race precluded her or the people around her into thinking that she could actually have a job in television and then come to find out not only could she have a job and do well at the job, but the person who hired her as a production assistant was a Black woman. So it was one of those things where people, if, if you didn't see it, people didn't, didn't know that you could be it. So that was important. I noticed something about Tessa Thompson um, when she is cast in period pieces. The directors like to do these close-ups on her face with periods of silence. And sometimes it works for me and sometimes it, it doesn't. Because then I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I feel like this moment is significant. And at times I could not figure out what the significance was. With Robert, I'm going to say something controversial. I think he would be an excellent voice actor. I closed my eyes and I could hear what he was trying to convey. But his face, as good looking as he is, and I do think he's fine, he looked like an eager puppy. He did. And he looked so excited to be there. And in this moment, 
that I was like, ain't you supposed to be upset, sir? I, I didn't, like, the face and the voice didn't match. Like, the voice sounded concerned, but the face was like, oh, sucky, sucky now. I was like, wait a minute. And I just wonder, like, he, he didn't do poorly at all, but I could feel his awkwardness. I could feel his newness. And as a result of that, I could not feel the depths of their extraordinary love outside of extraordinary dick, because that's what Mona Lisa essentially said. You know, I really couldn't feel it as convincingly as I think I should have, but it it didn't take away from the fact that this was a great hallmark to those melodramas of the 50s. And um, Aisha Harris, she did a review when it came out. And I'll just read an excerpt from it. And this is on NPR. And it's called Review. Tessa Thompson shines in Sylvie's love. There are films that invite the viewer in by emanating an energy so lush and warm that you long to continue living in that world even after the runtime has ended. I get this feeling whenever I watch one of Douglas Sirk's 1950s melodramas that despite holding up a mirror to serious themes like racism, classism, and puritanical social mores, offer a kind of comfort and splendor in their technicolor richness and grounded translations of mid-century American pathos. That same energy radiates through Eugene Ash's Sylvie's Love, a stylishly moody period drama riffing on love and desire, both romantic and professional. Portier and Carol had an opportunity to make together at the height of their careers. Thankfully, and in no small part because of Portier's and Carol's contributions to the art industry, a movie like Sylvie's Love can and does exist now. And where we're talking about um, Portier, we're talking about Sidney Portier and Diane Carroll, who were doing their thing in the 50s and the 60s. and um, the movie that she refers to earlier and I was thinking about was Paris Blues, which did star Sidney Poitier and Par Newman as jazz musicians living in Paris. And they fall for two women, Diane Carroll and Joanne Woodward. Now, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, I believe they were married in real life. But um, this harkens back to that. But Namandi isn't yet Poitier. I mean, nobody can be Sidney Poitier. I, I recognize that. But meaning feeling secure and I am this musician. When it did, when his timidness and his newness and his awkwardness, when it was really, really um, helpful to the role was when he first met Sylvie, the first meetings with Sylvie when they were awkward together or when he would meet new people. Or when he goes to Detroit and finds out that guy was was just full of shit, and he's like, oh, you know, like, what am I supposed? To, I don't know. What to, I don't know how to handle this. That newness is like literally the look on his face. Like I don't know how to handle this. That sold to me well, but I didn't get the the downtroddenness or the supreme passion or the extraordinary love. Or especially the 
understanding your place as a musician in America where times were changing, especially because Mona Lisa, uh, played by Asian Naomi King, whom I love and adore, every time we saw her, what was she doing? She was like, oh, yeah, I'm doing voting rights. So she was very much involved in the civil rights movement. And I appreciated that because when we think about the civil rights movement, who gets named is Martin Luther King. It's John Lewis. It's Bayard Rustin. It's the men. And just Rosa Parks. And the only thing they talk about Rosa Parks is that she sat down. They don't really talk about the Ella Bakers and the Septima Clarks. And Asian Army King's Mona Lisa seemed to be one of those people because she represented CORE. So I appreciated that, you know, the times were changing. She was a part of it. She wasn't chased at all. She was living her life and living it fully and occupied a space of freedom that Sylvie did not occupy or have and didn't until she stepped into the career. And really the times that she was her most powerful and self was when it was just her and Michelle. Not her and Lacey, not her and and Robert, which is why Robert settled for the understanding that I love her enough to let her go. And then that old adage of, if you love something, let it go. And if it is yours, it'll return to you. And it did. But um, there's a lot of issues of class and understanding that you are who you are and she is who she is. And you have to love each other in that space. So I am a professional. You are blue collar. And that works for us. That's all I have to say about that. Okay. Well, I know love can transcend class or station. So that's also what this shows at the end of the day. Love conquers all. As so romance is, is the, always the theme. What the what now? That love conquers all. All of what? <laughs> yeah, all of everything. <laughs> okay. Supposedly, you know how romance novels and movies go? You know, love is supposed to be the ever binding conqueror. Look, not that that's true in real life, but that's why it's a movie. Okay, I'll take it. I'm I mean, oh my god. Uh. I don't know how I feel about what you're saying, but there's so many thoughts that go that are running through my mind right now that I don't know how to start whittling them down. At the end, there is a happily ever after or happily for now in romance novels, or at least the expectation of hope and newness and wanting to move forward together. And that is what we got with Sylvie's love. I don't know if that's love conquering all because love is not conquering the fact that America moved past jazz. I don't know if Amer America moved past jazz at that moment. I would argue that America has not reclaimed jazz. Jazz is celebrated way more around the world than it is here. We're not producing jazz musicians the way that we used to. That part may be true, but I don't think jazz has gone away. There are multiple festivals and showcasings of jazz talent 
whether it's by geographical or basically geographical, because there are tons of festivals that happen um, across the country that definitely showcase jazz. There are still, there are radio stations um, that still showcase jazz. Yes, but who are they playing? We're talking about the creation of new jazz artists from America. That was the point. So yes, there are, there's a Newport Jazz Festival. There's all these jazz festivals. I mean, New Orleans still has, I mean, Trombone Shorty came out of there, John Baptiste. They're jazz musicians that are American, came out of New Orleans. I'm not saying that we don't, but we're not producing them at the same amount as Canada is or in Latin America are, we are producing rap artists, although they are coming from around the world too. I'm just saying that it's not the same. I'm trying very hard not to get on my jazz soapbox that I inherited, but I will say that I don't think that we revere it as much as we used to. And again, love cannot conquer people's tastes in music that also reflected the changing of the times because a lot of jazz well you know there's instrumental and then there's the vocal stylings and so much of it like your Miles Davis doesn't have words so if you are looking especially in the 50s and moving into the 60s and the 70s of civil rights black power and having the music and the lyrics reflect the anger and the changing and the hope, those things are harder to convey when there's no lyrics that are there. I mean, yes, there's Coltrane's A Love Supreme. That's one of the first Afrofuturistic works there are, but it's not the same as singing Say A Lot, I'm Black and I'm Proud, which is something that the youths want to hear. That's something that they want to sing to. That's something they want to dance to in a little different way. So that's my thing that love does not, doesn't conquer that. It's their love for themselves. And here's another point that I wanted to make. I just knew that Sylvie's love was going to be a name of the song that he composed for her. And he didn't. Yeah. And I was like, why is this the name of the movie? Why Sylvie's love and not Robert's love or more to the point, Extraordinary Dick? Because we're not naming movies that are not porn, Extraordinary Dick. Why not Extraordinary Love? Because they, they, that's what they said. But I'm like, okay, so it's Sylvie's love. You want to know why? It's because porn. all the men were com- were being in love with Sylvie. Because we have Robert and Lang being in love with her, not necessarily her in love with them, you know, even though that is the case with her and Robert. All right, fine. If using that logic is the case, then Sylvie's love was of music, of television, of Robert, of her parents, of Michelle, of herself. So I'll take it. Because like she loved all those things, and we saw that she did. But still, missed opportunity for when Robert said, hey, uh, white band leader, I have these songs that I've been working on. And one of them, 
should have been named Sylvie's love. Like, even if he showed him to him, even if I was like, oh, nah, nah, nah. But we could see Sylvie's love written on it. Not necessarily a, a, a new composition, but just a nod to it. I, a smidge disappointed. True. It is a movie based with a jazz background. It was, like you said, an opportunity to have made a piece center around her, around the movie's title. Or it could have been a special, even if it wasn't actually written, a specialty piece for the for the soundtrack instead of the music that was necessarily played at the beginning or the end of the film it could have been this special piece i mean and not to say that we don't we don't appreciate the music that was being played but like you said it was an opportunity that they did not take advantage of but i really did like sylvie being showcased as a woman going after her dreams her um, career dreams Mm-hmm. When there were so many obstacles that were in her way, just by one, like you said earlier, being black and two, being a woman. So I do like that they showcased her and that she actually became a great producer, at least local television producer. Mm-hmm. Did you take notes? Did I take notes? No. Oh, okay. Well, I did. So I'm just going to read some of these and see if anything pops you. Are they coherent? No. But, That's okay. Right. So, as a New York 1961, Tessa Thompson is Sylvie. She loves a period piece. This is, this movie is a who's who and black actors. Are we really? Is it a who's who? Mm-hmm. So it, well, was there anybody that you didn't recognize? I mean, there were people that we recognized, but are we saying who's who is like the best that there are? or been around the block long time, what do you mean by who's who? I mean, yes, there are people that are recognizable. I mean, and I'm going to say the most recognizable face in the whole movie who's been longstanding was Eva Longoria. Mm-hmm. Other than that, everyone is still... There was Lance Reddick. Um, he, he was on The Wire. He was in... What was that latest Keanu Reeves? John Wick. He's been in a lot of things. There's Reggie John Page, which after Bridgerton made him a who's who. There's Asian Naomi King. There was Alan O'Mills. He played um, Lacey. And I recognize him from Underground and other places. Tom Bell, he played Dickie, Eva Longoria's husband. He was on a flash and some other things. So the, uh, what I'm saying is that I don't think that there is anybody in a starring role who hadn't been in other things where it's like, oh, yeah, okay. With the exception of the dude that got him to Detroit. Okay. So that's what I was like, oh, this person's in it, that person's in it. And then. Then I will agree with you in that manner. Yeah. And then in the beginning, they, it was really helpful when they said who people were so it was tessa thompson as sylvie well i do like when films do that that was a part of that stylized melodrama of the 50s that i appreciated the nods to eunice johnson school of etiquette and said it feels like ebony's fashion fair and the ebony's fashion shows <laughs> I, it did. Uh, they had a poster <laughs> of the blue Morocco. And I said, I want that in my house for real because I love jazz music. 
Asian and we can't still love her. Miss Anne, aka Countess, was eyeing the black men like Sylvester does Tweebird. <laughs> That's, I mean, like, Lord. Like, nasty. Oh um, my goodness, you said like Sylvester does Tweebird. That's just bad. Do hope that we see what kind of TV shows Sylvie will and wanted to make. So I'm glad we did. And then I had a question, like, how old is Sylvie supposed to be? I'm going to go based on the history we have. We have that she went to her cotillion. Mm-hmm. She's been working in the store for a bit. Um, Lacey's outfit wore. I called him Lance. Lacey. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to say she's somewhere between 21 and 25. Okay. She's got a little bit of life under her belt, but still a life that's controlled by her mother. But she still lived at home. Right. Because she still she still lived at home because we know she wasn't married yet. She was engaged. Mm-hmm. And and generally, you weren't moving out until you became married. So mm-hmm. whatever age that was. Speaking of her mother, my next observation was, isn't Sylvie's father beneath Miss Eunice's station? I don't know. Yeah, he was a business owner, but, you know, he wasn't a doctor like Lacey. No, she wasn't a doc. He wasn't a doctor, but that doesn't make him beneath her station because he is an entrepreneur and contributing to the society of the of Harlem. Yeah, that's true. It was just the way that she was acting. And also, did we see them in a scene together? Don't think so. So almost makes me wonder if they were divorced. I don't think that was implied anywhere that they were divorced. But we did never see them together. Yeah. So it was that's that's another reason why I thought is he beneath her station because this, you're talking about a well, she, man she, who wouldn't throw out trash. Well, she right. busted up in that uh, that music shop like she owned a joint. So, but her father wasn't there, and she ran up on her daughter to remind her daughter not to fraternize with the help because he is beneath her station. If they were divorced, I don't know if she'd be running up in there because she really did. She really have one hundred percent know that he wasn't there no so i wouldn't I think know. if they were divorced she'd be running up in there like she owned the joint well it also helps that it's a glass front so you can see <laughs> he couldn't have been in the stock room in the office in the back and then i would leave so i ran up on my daughter reminded her of my expectation and then he he come and then you look at him you hit him with the you old fish eye fool and then you leave <laughs> You know, like, like you hit him with a friend, Stafford. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, another reason why I thought, well, maybe they ain't together is the way that she acted at that funeral. Because you know the ex-wives, you know how I go. <laughs> when they show up in the funeral, they act like, oh! Like, like, wait a minute, but, we, no, but wait a minute. They, oh, they focused on the father the whole mm-hmm. time? Mm-hmm. I took it that the mother died before the father. No, they kept mentioning the mother. And they mentioned her, but that doesn't mean that she was actually physically around. Yeah, she was because she was at the funeral. 
I don't remember seeing her at the funeral. Oh, she was at the funeral. And that's one of the reasons why Lacey ran up on Sylvie and was like, you're not being a hostess. Look, maybe the mom just was not that engaging for me because I don't remember seeing her up in that funeral. Oh, she was in there. Like the okay. mom was, was there. If the film needed a villain outside of that hoe, made it real clear that she would take Robert anyway. He could put it anywhere he wanted to with her. Are we talking about the chick that came to the, the show? That was dancing in the show, was uh Dickie brought her by and all this other stuff. Like yeah. he I brought her for you. And I was like, woo, like uh, a yeah. like yeah. a you know, like her. Uh, other mm-hmm. than uh I wouldn't call her a villain, I would just call her a hope. But um and ain't nothing wrong with that if that's what you want. I mean, you know, make it known, girl. But you, you saying it's okay to put it out there, you want to be a hoe. Okay. Then who wants to be a hoe? The girl that is always being around, be brought up to hoe with him. Listen, I'm going to put it to you like this. What she did was she knew what she wanted and she wasn't playing coy. She was making it quite clear to Robert and to anybody with eyes that he could have all of that whenever he wanted that there would have been no hesitation on her part now because we're taking it from a perspective of this movie where the name of it is Sylvie's love and it's supposed to have this great love and she's intervening in that she a hoe but on its own i'm like girl do you you know how you gonna know it's the equivalent of shooting your shot i'm not mad at it is what i'm saying i mean i'm mad that she was borderline disrespectful sylvie like why would you ask for you know like a baby when you can have the mama or whatever i don't even know what to say because he she she did say come on with the big leads and stop babysitting with the child like you know what it is here Oh, I said, there's an eagerness in Nemandi's face that he can't contain. Tessa responds to it like one does any overeager puppy. This movie suffers from the we are the only people in the world syndrome. This is New York. Why isn't it more bustling? When Sylvie spends time with Robert, there should have been a concern that they, oh, when, um, when they went on that date, he was like, normally we take me on a date, you know, we kiss or something and there should have been a concern that somebody will see them and report on it sylvie is in society he was out and in another time he was out there playing the saxophone like the pie piper and nobody screamed shut up and right. you know like and her true. mama who was on alert yeah that she's she on her whole shit because you know that's how she, she got engaged to Lacey in the first place her mama didn't hear how <laughs> Because she's like, my mom, my mama gonna hear me, hear it. I mean, as loud as that sax was, the whole, like you said, the whole neighborhood should have heard. I mean, every other time you see representations of New York, somebody's doing something and somebody went out, shut up, you know, nothing, nothing, but nobody outside, never. Mm, okay. And it um, was dark. <laughs> you know, but there were several times where, where she was just walking down the street. I'm gonna walk home. Let me take you not a cab not nobody on the street like why not walk home girl ain't nobody else out there maybe they shot on a studio lot and they forgot about those little things they do that all the time 
with places where they forget that urban spaces are bustling. Um, Mona and Chico were sexing all over the place, but Sylvie got some extraordinary dick and gets pregnant. How did that happen? He offered <laughs> to take her to Paris. She knew she was pregnant. Why didn't she tell him? That was your point. Alano Miles is Lacey. That wife of the account executive was a mess. Oh, when Sylvie went to fix the coffee, I hope she put a little Suge Avery's pee in it. <laughs> put a little poison in it. Angry. No, just a little Suge Avery's pee. Don't poison it, but just a little Suge <laughs> Avery's pee. Uh, of course, I say Nancy Wilson is my favorite because she is. We'll get back to her. And she came to a hotel without her child and fucked him. So I was like, guess five years with extraordinary dick was too long. Um, and then we talk about the divide and conquer about the money is a trip because we understood that Dickie was uh, getting all the publishing and cutting uh, Robert out of it because the Contessa, who was white, was sleeping with him. And then I said, Dickie was a dick and they made it easy for us to hate him. Sylvie sang I'm Not Your Superwoman to Lacey at her father's repast. Lacey was a decent dude, just a product of his time trying his best to play his position as second fiddle. Not Sylvie reading the feminist critique. She was reading that. So that, I mean, you talked about her having her career and trying to do a lot, but Jesus be an Alice Walker book. Uh, Robert was really calm about finding out about Michelle. Didn't see that being a normal calm conversation. But then again, a lot of stuff we're watching right now, when the men are finding out about these children, they're not going off the wall. Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't sure. This is this is the acting choices. So I wasn't sure if he was calm because that was of ability at the time or if he was calm because, no, I just, like, I don't know why he was calm. It almost felt odd like even if he was calm he didn't sell me on that he was devastated or disgusted or just deeply hurt that like why didn't you tell me it was just like oh michelle is yours also there's dinner in the oven bye and he was like, <laughs> well look okay. maybe look maybe because he's been told this before <laughs> i didn't think about that like <laughs> say he's got children all over the he's coming all over the world in, he, in, is a in every area he, he is a traveling musician that's true and it's not like um protection was something that everybody was using back then even though they could have french letters were a thing you know we all know pull out does not an accurate method it's not like everybody was using it back then. It's not like us nowadays pushing, con using the condom and you could go in the grocery store and buy it on off the shelf. This is true. This is true. But yet and still, well, the pills started coming out around that time. Which, you know, the whole point of women's lib and all. Again, availability to white women first. Th this is true. But how did her cousin, who said, I've had sex lots of times control maybe, maybe maybe they were using them lamb condoms <laughs> well then why couldn't she that's my hey, point because she because she was the one that just jumped into just jumped into it well you know the, the whole point is they had these conversations and she was feeling robert like that why not say you know like i'm feeling him and get the tea because one thing was clear that they were close enough 
where she would have told her whatever she needed to know without judgment. So why not ask her about like, I, I want to go there and how do I do it safely? And I think that that speaks to her age and naivete. How old was she again? But whatever. We only could guess. The last comments that I had was the fact that when Robert and uh, Sylvie met at the Nancy Wilson concert, mm-hmm. that I love Nancy Wilson. She's one of my favorite vocal stylists or singers. Love Nancy Wilson. And, you know, she died about two years ago. I was so sad because people didn't really honor her the way that I thought they should have. But that's another story for another day. What I wanted to talk about was I really appreciated how they did that scene where it was the two of them in a balcony and you could hear her singing. Mm -hmm. That I thought was very evocative and it just speaks to if they didn't do anything right, all of the music cues and throughout that movie was right on point. I loved every single song that they selected and I mean, to the point where I'm, I haven't gone on to Spotify or whatever else to see if there is a Sylvie's Love playlist, because that is something that I would play around here. And of course, the fashions, I appreciated that in the makeup because, ooh, they did some winged eyes and her hair and the clothes. Sylvie was styling. That she definitely was. Her, her outfits were definitely on point. So was her makeup and her hair. Well, both, both, all the ladies, actually. And the men weren't too bad. Their their suits were fitting just perfectly the way they should have. And they did go back and get appropriate coloring for suits and things. Like I said, my only critique about cinematography is that it was, and it was lighting. It was a little bit too dark for me, most of the movie. I wonder if that was because so much of it was supposed to happen at night. Maybe. And in clubs. Maybe. But I feel you. I liked it. I thought it was atmospheric. It wasn't how to get away with murder, which yeah, was, it was never dark. that dark. But was, yeah, but I can see where it wasn't so bright that it was blinding. But I can see where you could say it's a little uh, moodier than some of the new releases. I thought that it added character and made it feel more vintage. Okay. Yeah. I could I could take that. Well, is there anything else? No, I think you had lots to say about Sylvie's love. <laughs> what you trying to say? <laughs> I think you enjoyed it. <laughs> I did. So here's my final thought. This I think was a successful piece of romance and or black romance and a period piece where they didn't ignore the times they didn't ignore blackness but they also didn't let their blackness handicap them in any way so it was who they it's just like how we live our life we're black every day and yet and still we live life we have love we have ambitions we have disappointments we have successes we have failures we have deaths we have births we have unexpected things and all of that happens in concert with our blackness, not in spite of, not because of, in concert with. 
I appreciated that. And I would like to see more movies do that. So now I'm going to ask a question. I have two questions of you. The first question is, if you could create a romance movie for romance sake in a different black romance in a different era, which era would it be? Hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. What era? Taking into into account the actual history of that era? Oh, yes, but that's I'm saying era, but and I'm saying black, but I'm not necessarily saying America. So, you could do Canada, you could do Haiti, you could do the UK. So, if you're asking about history um, and you're thinking, oh, I don't want to do this time frame because it was like this for Black people. But if you wanted to shift it and think about history in another country or whatever, I'm not like handicapping you to any of those things. So also, nor am I saying that you got to cast it. If you do want to cast it like The Harder They Fall, which is in the 1800s, Cowboys, Idris Elba, Regina King, I'm not asking you to do that per se but just the era um i like the 20s and i like the 60s i felt like the 70s 80s 90s that's all been overdone has it i feel yeah we've had we've had enough we have had enough maybe maybe not true true romances but romance-esque types Okay, so you're saying the 20s, we're talking like Harlem Renaissance 20s? Yeah, the okay. 20s and the 60s. I think that would be my 20s and the 60s. Okay. And the second question is a callback to the movie. Uh, what is your favorite vintage song of the summer? I think that's one of the questions the cousins asked each other. They were oh. asking about different songs. So I figured if I just say vintage song of the summer, that's broad enough where you could say, well, the song of this summer. Um, I don't know. Um, uh. Would it be easier if I just asked you what your favorite jazz song is? No, it wouldn't. <laughs> um, And you know, I took the history of jazz as one of my classes. In college. I did not know that. I grew up with Dave Hairston, so. And well, you had, yes, you you had your own <laughs> in-house jazz history professor. I had to uh -huh. pay for mine. Yep. <laughs> I don't know, but since it transitioned into the 60s, mm -hmm. I would go with, and it wouldn't be jazz, it would actually be Motown. No, I didn't. I just said any song, any vintage song. And then I know, but it's so it's so many. Um, Are you Googling it right now? Are you trying to Google a song? Like, no, I'm not actually trying like, to Google. I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to decide of all of the ones. Which one do I want? OK, we're going to go with the Supremes Baby Love. OK. I think that that's one of my favorite. Maybe because what we used to do 
at home with my mom, with my parents when I was younger. And we put that daggone album on and we'd sing like sing around and dance around the living room with our fake microphones. You know, your hand being a microphone. <laughs> Listen, Diana Ross is the boss up in this house. So <laughs> um, I love some Diana Ross. We would sit up there and, you know, sing the songs from that album. Like we didn't have no damn sense. My baby love. And then we'd be like, and then we'd also go, if you take your love from me, I'll turn a stone, turn a stone. Okay. That was our, that was one of our deals. And we would play, and we would be, do that for a few hours. So maybe I'll go with that just okay. for reminiscing sake. Anything what about else? you? Uh, to which question? Um, <laughs> both of them. I'm always for the Harlem Renaissance because I think that there is something about it. Although I would say the issue with the Harlem Renaissance that I have is that it is elitist. And so it doesn't give this, the thing, we romanticize that era, but it is full of the talent and tenth. And a lot of it was about proving to white people that we could be like them through their emulation. And um, whites to try to treat blacks better by them seeing themselves in what we do. And of course, with our own flavor, but so I love that era, but I recognize its limitations. My co-answer hmm, would be the 80s. Okay. Uh, because you said, well, oh, it's been done. And I'm thinking, I don't really know of a romance movie of the 80s off the top of my head that wasn't full of pain. Okay. You know? Okay. All right. And, I I could I could see that. Yeah, so I'm thinking and I'm not I'm not entirely sure when are the 80s, but I'm thinking um because I'm cuz I'm black and I'm from the city. I am really thinking about teenagers and the emergence of hip hop. Okay. So, and I'm not talking about Brown Sugar, they like love my life and you know, we did that and that was in the 2000s and it was based there, but you know, I'm really talking about what was it like for Roxanne Chante, somebody who was 16 and an MC in this emerging art form that is dominated by men to be, to find love and be treated with respect and like a queen. Like what would that have looked like? Um, you know, something along those lines. I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm taking Toni Morris's advice, right? And creating the thing that you haven't seen for yourself. And I think that that's what it would be. And if not those two things, reconstruction. I think reconstruction, we don't do enough in the time frame of reconstruction. But um, out of that era came one of our first millionaires and Madam C.J. Walker. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think that, yeah, if, if not reconstruction, if not the Harlem Renaissance, then definitely the 80s. That's me. And in terms of music, um, Ella Fitzgerald does a wonderful version of "Over the Somewhere Over the Rainbow." I love Billie Holiday, "Them Their Eyes," 
And uh, I talked about Nancy Wilson. My favorite Nancy Wilson song is Never Will I Marry. Uh, I love Dinah Washington. I mean, you know, like you, don't get me started on on the vocal stylings. I, 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 <laughs> I have a thing for jazz singers. And, and if not, uh, I mentioned it earlier, Love Supreme. Um, just just in terms of instrumental. So that's me. Is there, I, I leave you with the last word or, or however you want to close us out. My last words are going to say that this piece is worth taking the, it's not quite two hours to sit back and enjoy it and watch it. It's worth it. I would suggest watching it in a room with a little light and I think you'll enjoy it. That's my final note. Well, I think we're going to end that for today. Thank you for joining Lady D and Lady H for another episode of Watch With You. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We invite you to send us your feedback, musings, puns, and comments at watchwithyoupod at gmail.com. On Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, Watch With You Pod.